This episode is brought to you by Northern Rural Supplies. Northern Rural Supplies proudly service the Kimberley and Pilbara region, specialising in livestock sales, real estate, animal health and management, fencing, fertiliser, water and all other requirements. They stock your everyday needs to feed your dogs, cats, horses, chooks, camels and even goats. The whole team is based in Broome, so make sure you give them a call for all of your agricultural and semi-rural needs. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. Graduating high school is possibly the greatest pressure faced by young Australians. It's an unchallenged belief that without achieving this milestone, you'll be stuck in a dead-end job with no career prospects. But did you know that the education system hasn't undergone significant changes since before the Industrial Revolution? We know that everyone learns differently and that there's different ways to demonstrate knowledge, but our education system is incredibly rigid. If you can't sit in a classroom for eight hours and demonstrate your knowledge through essays and exams, then, well bad luck. In today's episode, we hear the story of Evan Casey, who, after leaving high school in year 11, has gone on to build an incredible life and career filled with opportunities and experiences that many of us only dream about. This episode was recorded when Evan and his fiancée Hannah were managing Hammersley Station in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. They've since started an exciting new chapter on the East Coast. However, I did ask Evan to start the episode by explaining where Hammersley is. Uh, So I'm at Hammersley Station, which is uh, about 50 kilometres out of Tom Price, a few hours south of Caratha, and it's all about... uh, about a 15-hour drive uh, north of Perth, so fairly close to the coast, but um, still a long way away. <laughs> and so you're, you're pretty much dead set in the centre of the Pilbara, or? Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah cent- centred uh, west, yeah. Yeah, don't mind me, I just haven't looked at the map in a hot <laughs> minute. Uh, but also, you know, the Pilbara, aside from its pastoral industry, is also very well known for being a huge mining area for not just Western Australia, but for Australia. Yeah, yep. So uh, Hammersley Station itself is owned by Rio Tinto. So we are surrounded by iron ore mines and trains and things like that. So it's been a different experience for me. But um, yeah, so they own quite a few properties through the Pilbara. 
um, which they yeah, have there for land access and, and that sort of thing. But we're obviously running cows. So I'm, I'm really excited to have this episode and uh, be able to share parts of your story so far because um, you're still obviously quite young. Um, well, in the scheme of things, I've learned it's always better to tell somebody <laughs> they're young than old because I tend to accidentally tell people they're old and it never goes down well. But then I just realized I was like, I don't want to, you to sound like you're too young. Um, you're appropriately aged for where you're at in life. How about I put it that way? But uh, yeah, managing a cattle station uh, is, is obviously an achievement. Um, and then doing it for a large mining company. Uh, and then so you, obviously within every station has different layers uh, of things people have to do, but you also have to work within a, a mining industry. And, and it's not just about kind of being remote and maybe dealing with a few tourists coming here, driving through or, you know, bits and pieces that a lot of other people have to deal with. You've um, got several mining mines and all sorts of activity going on. Yeah. We're also, I'm very excited going to talk about a research project that you're leading Um and this is all not not to sound too cliche or you know uh, like this is, but it, this is all coming from um, a kid who's worked his way up after leaving school at sixteen. Yeah, <laughs> I think no, I think so it's really- incredible. Like you know, when often when people, you know, the education system is so um, uh, regimented and and uh, not inflexible, if that's the right word, that when people hear that somebody's dropped out of school at or, or not, you know, or taking a different pathway, we don't see people ending up in a position like you. So that's why I'm so excited to hear your story. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like it, it is an interesting sort of start and it's not a short journey for sure. There's a lot of um, you know, self-education that has to come through that after that. Talk me through your last couple of years at school and how you came to the decision to leave. I mean, I guess I was getting, I was, you know, into year, year 11 and, sort of halfway through and I was thinking to myself, I don't know really how I how I fit into this and, you know, you're starting to do career days and, and that sort of thing and I'm like, I don't really know what I want to do and obviously um, I really enjoyed farming and, and that sort of thing and I was thinking, oh, maybe I'll do that and but I just really wasn't sure and I really wasn't enjoying school at all, you know. Uh, it was fun hanging out with mates and that sort of thing but school itself just didn't really suit me. So I sort of said to my parents, um, who funnily enough, uh, my dad is a teacher. So <laughs> I went up to them and I was like, you know what, I kind of don't want to do school anymore. How did and they take that? No, they were like, yeah, you should finish school. But, you know, my I think my mum was like trying to be supportive and, and whatnot and she probably regrets it now. But she's like, oh, well, if I guess if you get a job, you know, go and do that. And I think it was about two weeks later I rolled up a swag and hopped onto a cattle truck and went north. <laughs> so it was, it was a pretty quick sort of rollout, and then you know I, I did some continue doing some schooling through correspondence, and yeah, so that was sort of supposed to be a short trip just to go and have a bit of a taste of uh, station life. Obviously, growing up in a farming area, I, you know, knew quite a lot about farming and that sort of thing, but I had no real comprehension of what a cattle station was at that point. So, so you, you dropped out of mainstream school and then went on a short trip to a cattle station, and then after that resumed schooling in some form through correspondence? Yeah, yeah. So I come back to sort of finish things off, but then I was supposed to just come back and finish off completely, but then I decided, no, you know what, I'm just going to go and then um, completely stay north and kept doing a bit of schooling and went down and finished, like did exams and stuff like that. But um, So I managed to complete that year um, just all remotely, but while learning to live 
on a cattle station. <laughs> so you were doing. So was this the cattle station that you were living on? Yeah. That, that you were working on. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so first, sorry, first right. job out of school, working on a cattle station, and you were trying to finish school as well. Yeah. 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 That's huge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't think it would be that big of a deal. I thought, you know, like, um, I after work, I'll. I'll do a bit of do a bit of study <laughs> a bit and of calculus. Yeah, you know. Um, and then I realised, like, yeah, after work you're usually fairly tired. <laughs> um, where I wasn't in at that time, uh, we didn't. The power turned off as well, so <laughs> there was no no lights or things like that. So um, it definitely made it a little bit more difficult. Yeah. Where had you come from in South? Do you say South Australia? Yeah, South Australia. So the, where I was going to school was in Port Pirie. Uh, which is sort of just a couple of hours north of Adelaide. Um, and it's a, yeah, pretty, oh, I think 25,000 people or 26,000 people, something like that. Um, and then just surrounded by cropping and mixed farming uh, and that sort of thing. And that's sort of my family sort of background in that area. And how did you find your first job on a station? Yeah. So probably because of where that school was situated, we had a lot of station kids that had come down and board there as well. So, um, uh, there was, uh, young lad I knew um, who was a couple of years younger than me, but I knew his family had properties up north and that sort of thing. And I just went and spoke to him and he was like, yeah, no worries. Like my, my, um, I think it was his brother at the time was, oh, he's taking a load of steel up. You can go with him next week or something. I was like, righto. Uh, <laughs> so it was, it was a whirlwind even for me. I definitely didn't expect it to go that quick, but because it all just sort of matched up, I was like, oh, well, I guess um, I'm going. That was going to be my next question. Like, how did you find the truck? How did you make sure the truck wasn't driven by a serial killer? You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, like I didn't know anything about it. Um, I didn't know them well or anything like that. They're a lovely family. You know, uh, it was, they sort of made the experience really good. And, um, I went up to a property, which is on the Sandover. We're probably closer to Mount Isa than, than Alice Springs there. It was about, I think it was like an eight hour drive down the Sandover. So like I'd never really been that remote ever at that point like i'd been to remote places and and that sort of thing but not not that far from a, a store or a shop or a town or, or something like that so did you end up working for that kid's family yes yeah yeah so they yeah. hooked you up with a job and they so, got you up there yeah and dropped me off like i it wasn't working for them directly they had a manager there uh his name was uh ian fletcher um i remember him well he what was, was the name of the property can i ask Argadagada. So good they spelled it twice. So let's say so Agadada da. Agadagada. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not gonna try and say that. I'm gonna get that wrong. <laughs> yeah. I have been told it's a it's a local word, but I'm not hundred percent sure on that. But it would make sense. Um but yeah, it's sort of right next to um uh, Lake Nash, which is, you know, really big property and that sort of thing. And um yeah, pretty desert country sort of area, bit of a mix and um yeah, I can't really imagine how they would have felt about seeing this kid rock up and had a you know, big black hat on and knew pretty well, you know, like I could ride horses and, um, you know, motorbikes and I had fairly, you know, good background of like welding, mechanical stuff and that sort of thing. But I was young and pretty green. <laughs> so um, I can't really imagine how they would have felt when they were just like, hey, we brought this kid up and he wanted some work and we thought you guys can give him some. So. <laughs> What uh, time of year was this? Uh, this was uh, sort of like during, like would have been like third term, so it would have been like heading into um, like just sort of after winter 
um, spring yeah. sort of thing. So there's still cattle work to be yeah, done. Yeah, yeah, mustering time. Um, you know, it was one of those big million-acre blocks, a uh, lot of feral cattle. Um, you know, we used to do a lot of mustering, like not really using helicopters or anything at that point. So there was, you know, a lot of riding, big days, moving cattle, um, you know, 50 kilometres and things like that. And uh, I ne- <laughs> never really expected, you know, like how much – I would learn in a very short period of time, but you definitely get thrown in the deep end. I hadn't even done much manual car driving and I jumped in a ute and they're like, yeah, go do this bore run. And I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> you learn fast. But- <laughs> How do you feel about replacing the clutch? <laughs> you, you said you were uh, like, you had a fairly decent background in, in things mechanical and kind of, you know, from growing up on a farm. Uh, and, but you said on the other hand, you were quite green. What were you like as a young fella? Were you quite shy? Were you a bit cocky? Uh, yeah, what were you like to to be around? I don't know. I, I was probably um, oh, I'll say I was shy, but I- <laughs> and uh, just for context, uh, Evan's fiance is sitting in the room and she's mouthing "cocky" several times over. <laughs> okay, maybe a little bit. Um, you know, I was a young bloke. Like, yeah, probably was a little bit. Um, <laughs> You know, thought I could do anything. Um, and so that's probably why I was silly enough to take something like that on. Yeah. So, well, I sort of did that, um, sort of got a bit of a taste of it and, um, got hooked really. Um, I did one trip back home, um, after that sort of first initial trip. So those guys were doing a trip up and back. And so I went up and just did like a, a few weeks and I was like, I really like this. Um, because I was just contemplating actually joining the army. I was like, oh, well, it's only not long till I'm old enough. Maybe I'll just find a farm job and join the army. And um, then I went and did that. And I was like, you know what? I, I think I'm going to be a ringer. Uh, <laughs> How did mum and dad take this? Uh, you know, I, I think mum thought, I think she definitely thought I was just going to go out there, get knocked around a bit and come home and be like, yeah, stuff this. So I'm like, I'll, <laughs> I'll stay home. Um, so... You know, they obviously were supportive, but I definitely think mum's were like, oh, why don't I let you leave? <laughs> but you think you know, a lot of the stuff we were doing, we were, you know, chasing feral bulls and things like that. And, you know, I was just in my element on a motorbike and that sort of thing. So I just loved it. I think it must take on a parent's, for any parent, obviously I'm not a parent, but, um, you know, your kids going out to their first job or, you know, something at, you know, like leaving school, which, isn't necessarily supported by society as much as it could be. Uh, and then heading into a job where in, in this industry, you know, 90% of the jobs are kind of, you know, entry level, lower level. And it is kind of, uh, while, while having skills and experience is really highly valued. Um, it's still, I guess, not just in the cattle industry, but in all industries, there is this idea that you need that piece of paper to be able to succeed. So I can, there must have been, I, I can, I don't know. I can only just imagine as a parent thinking like, oh, I've let him go off into this and how is he going to get beyond this? Which is why, again, why I'm loving this episode because you've completely blown that idea out of the water. Yeah. It, it is definitely something that even played in the back of my mind. And, uh, definitely in my sort of, you know, later teens, I was like, maybe I'm doing the completely wrong thing here. Maybe I should go back and, and finish and, and um, I almost did. I almost went back and did year 12 the next year. And, look, I think, honestly, it was just hanging around mates that made that more of a draw card. And then I realised, you know what, 
I really enjoy doing this and this is what I feel like I'm probably going to do for the rest of my life. So I might as well jump in sort of both feet. I guess the other thing is is that there's more than one way of learning and different types of education and as, again, don't want to obviously like give it away, but as people will see in this episode, you certainly haven't stopped learning since. You know, you may be out of the traditional school environment, but you have continued to learn just as much as if you'd been at school and and more. So, yeah, I guess as it, so I, I I suppose I'm a pretty big advocate of that. Like the classroom isn't for everyone, even though there's me that went sat the classroom as long as I could and tried <laughs> to never leave university. Uh, you know, we do have a really rigid education system. So after that, so you you went back. So you did your little trip to. Agadagada. Yeah, that's the one. That that was painful. (laughs) If anyone from there is listening, I'd love to have you on the podcast, but please don't make me say your name um, or spell it. Everyone just calls it Ag, I think. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I thought there were some pretty hard ones out there to say, but that one's definitely a bit of a tongue twister. So you you went up for a few weeks, went back um, down south, and then you went back up again in that same year. Is that right? Uh, No, we were coming to summer sort of thing. It was, it was a bit longer than a few weeks and then we're sort of coming into the end of that cattle season, that sort of thing. So it was like summertime. So I spent the summer down, um, down south. Can't think. I was probably working in a, you know, grain bunker or something like that, um, during harvest and that sort of thing. And, um, yeah, I was like thinking, oh, I'll go back to school next year. And then obviously comes around to that time where they're looking for people. And, um, yeah, I was like, do you know what? I'm going to go back up. And so did you go to the same property? I went to the same place. Yeah, the guy I worked for there was really handy, and um, I learned definitely a lot about um, you know he was great horseman, great stockman. So definitely learned a lot about how to handle cattle and feral cattle and that sort of thing. And in those days, we were doing a lot of tailing out wieners. We didn't really have um, you know hay uh, to feed out in yards and stuff like that. You weren't making the money you're making now from cows. So um, you're always walking cattle out of the yards all the time and. Uh, you're spending a lot of time just sort of in the paddock, you know, surrounding cattle and that sort of thing. It was pretty nice, quiet um, lifestyle. So for our listeners that haven't had the opportunity to be involved in this industry, what is walking out or tailing wieners and why were you doing that? Yeah, so part of it's for, like, educating the young cattle. So we take them out, get them used to being handled um, in, a, in a group and, and that sort of thing, but it's also to feed out, so... They'll go into the yard at night time and then first thing in the morning we'll go and take them out, give them a bit of training and get them used to being handled by people and then let them feed. So they just sit there and feed all day and then in the evening we'd just bring them all back to the yard and just made them really quiet, well-handled animals. And, um, yeah, it's definitely a big part of what what we used to do. I don't do it that much anymore. But Okay, so instead of feeding out hay or pellets in the yards, you would – Kind of like drove them yeah, short distances them for, and for let, a walk, yeah, and let them eat outside the yards and then bring them back. Yeah, yeah. What would you say is like the biggest lesson you learned during your time at Aga? Uh, um, look, I um, I learned a lot. <laughs> I learned you know so many different things. Um, I'd never experienced like feral cattle. You know, talking about cattle that could actually be dangerous. Um. You know, I, I didn't really, you know, I grew up in an area where cows are quiet. You know, you can walk in the yard and push them around and they're, you know, they're, de- they're properly domesticated and then you meet cows that have never seen a human and uh, will chase you on a motorbike. It was, that was a very different experience. Um, yeah. And probably maybe 
Um, as Hannah implied, I may have been a bit cocky, so I might have learned a bit about that. <laughs> um, and, you know, dealing with people and um, how to live full-time with people almost like, you know, you sort of just have get adapt, sort of sucked in like your family and um, moved into that world and, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of everything you act in your personal life and um, as well is also all sort of connected. So um, it's a it's a balancing act. Did you go to day school or boarding school? Uh, boarding school. Okay, so you'd yeah. already kind of experienced living away from home and being away from family and that side of things. No, no where I was at boarding school, my parents were the house parents. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. <gasps> so it wasn't quite that. Wasn't quite that experience, like away from home. <laughs> away from home. Wow, that's um, that's funny. Actually, that's really funny. So, and I never went to boarding school, but that's so you have different like houses, like dorms, I guess. Like, and so were your parents like for your dorm, I guess. Or yeah, yeah. So they did else's? all the older, like I think 10, 11, 12s, and we yeah. just had like a big house with you know separate um male female sort of. That must have been so. really interesting. I say interesting. That's a bit of a euphemism <laughs> um, because, you know, they're there to kind of, you know, um, maintain law and order and make sure nobody sets the, the building on fire and yeah. – and, and they'd be, be me lighting the match. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And be, you know, somewhat of a surrogate parent and an authority figure uh, and obviously a part of that is discipline. So how – I'm just thinking awkward if you're – like say if you get in trouble, like then – from doing something at school, it's your parent telling you off. But if your mates do something, like I, I know I've had people say they got in trouble for not making their bed correctly or, you know, <laughs> sneaking out after hours or whatever, then they're getting in trouble from your dad. <laughs> so it's not even like, oh, the housemaster, what an asshole. <laughs> yeah. like, like, oh, yeah, sorry, no, Evan, that's your dad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, f- I think most people like him a lot, but um, obviously, yeah, you'd have those instances of stuff like that where, yeah. Um, you're a teenager. You don't always agree with everything. So. Did you have to call him like Mr. No, Casey no, or no. Sir? Or was it like, <laughs> okay, Dad? Yeah, no. Mum and Dad was fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then I know at some point you ended up working at Kings Creek Station, which is uh, – tell us about where that is and, and how you came to be out in that part of the world. Yeah, so where I was at Arg, you know, obviously come to the next summer um, – Go down south again, sort of those sort of areas, uh, very similar to the Pilbara, get really hot. Um, so not much cattle work and that sort of thing. So headed home and then was looking for sort of somewhere new, um, ready for somewhere new and, uh, just had a small connection again through, you know, South Australia's got a lot of ca- connection to, to Central Australia and, and that sort of thing. So just through a friend of a friend knew someone like, Oh, we know a place that so will definitely be looking for people and, um, probably going to ARG like, it did take its toll on me to a degree because it is so remote um, and I was looking for a place that wasn't as remote. You know, maybe a, a bitumen road pretty close to their driveway would have been nice and, you know, just some people are at the same age to sort of hang around with. I didn't really have sort of young people there except for the um, direct uh, children of the manager that was there and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, then drove into Kings Creek and they probably had a pretty similar opinion <laughs> Young bloke turn up in his black ute and his black hat and thinking. Oh no! When you say black ute, what kind of ute was it? I had a um, uh, Commodore ute then. Yeah. So, so McLeod's daughters. <laughs> Hello, Alex Ryan. <laughs> so 
So, <laughs> yeah, so I turn up there and it was good because there was no speed limits in the territory then down the, down the main road. So, oh my God, a, you would have been a terror. A absolute playground, which is terrifying. Um, but yeah, I lived through it. So got plenty of stories to tell. <laughs> um, but yeah, same thing. So I'd sort of heard stories about the owners of, of Kings Creek and that, um, and was really excited to sort of go and, and do some work with them. And they were not just doing cattle; they were they were catching wild horses and and camels and doing contracts in in sort of some crown land areas and that sort of thing, just catching all ferals. And I was sort of really excited to take that on. So yeah, we've never had anybody on the podcast before that's been associated with Kings Creek. So I want you to take some time now and and tell us all about it. I suppose. Oh, sorry, my bad. Your fiance Hannah again in the room, episode thirty-seven. Worked there with you for many years. Has been on the podcast, episode thirty-seven. <laughs> so we've definitely had somebody on the podcast that's worked Oops. at Kings Creek. My bad. <laughs> but anyway, you were there before Hannah. So can you spend some time and uh, talk to me? I know, like the owners, the in the pre. Well, they're not there. No, they're not the current owners, but they were there for quite a while. And yeah, so they established quite- the property from. The, just the empty lease. Yeah. So can you t- tell us all about them? I guess just give us everything about yeah. Kings Creek. So it's uh, the Conway family, Ian Conway and Lynn. And, um, obviously they were there with their kids as well. That would have obviously had a hell of a lot to do with building it up. Um, as you do if you grow up on a cattle station. And, uh, yeah, they got it from an empty block, pretty much lived in a, a sort of tin shed once they could afford tin, I think, and, um, drilled. A lot of, you know, bore here and there and, uh, sort of got it established as a cattle property. And then, um, tourism started to flow past. What, when would they have established the state or, or come was, to the station? Do you think? I believe it was in the seventies. Um, cause the way you're talking, it sounds more like the 1870s. Yeah. I, it was almost that sort of style. Um, they definitely started it without much. Um, so if you saw the place now, you'd sort of be, bit blown away by what they produced in quite a small period of time but i think it was during the early 80s that tourism started to um come past the front door and um they definitely tried to capitalize on that as a you know a second form of income other than just the the cattle and even during that 80s period there was quite a large income they got from camels so they were catching wild camels out of the desert and they were one of the sort of largest camel catchers and sellers and exporters in 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 that time so um, yeah, quite an interesting story. Ian Conway himself has got an amazing sort of story. He, he pretty much grew up in the water of the state and in Alice Springs and his old man was a, a boss drover for Sydney Kidman. Um, so a lot of, a lot of cattle stockman history there, indigenous history and yeah, just quite amazing and quite humble people to sort of learn from. So Kings Creek itself, uh, it's about a, I'm pretty sure it's just one of those million acre squares that they divided a lot of that central Australia area into. And, um, they've obviously got the, that tourism sector I was talking about, which is right on the front of it. So food and fuel and, uh, camping and that sort of thing. And, uh, that was because they were about 40 kilometers from Kings Canyon, which is about a five hour drive out of Alice Springs, uh, and about a three hour drive from Ayers Rock. Um, so that was sort of, quite common for tour groups and, and people travelling through that area. They'd sort of go into Alice Springs, go to Kings Canyon, go to Ayers Rock, and then they'd come through that area and, um, 
yeah, that definitely supported them in the in the dry years and and things like that and helped them help them get themselves established. Um, but definitely uh, to Ian, his cattle and stockmanship was definitely his his passion. But um, yeah, tourism really helped him out. Um, so, what was your job that you were hired to do? Were you purely just on the livestock or st- you know the pastoral side of things, or we, did you have were you hired to be involved in the tourism as well? Everything, everything. So literally. I was coming there, you know, with station experience. So that was definitely, um, a part of my role was to help out with, you know, boar running and fencing and all that sort of general maintenance side of things. And then obviously cattle mustering and, and that. And then, um, I also did all down the tourism side as well. So from cleaning toilets in the campground to running ATV tours. Um, so they had ATVs there that would take people out on and I'd take people out on that as a 17 year old or something. So. You might be brave to follow me, but we yeah, went yeah. out into the desert and did that. And, you know, they had camels there, did camel rides. So I, you know, had a little bit with training camels and, and that sort of thing. But yeah, there was a lot. There wasn't too many days that we sat around not doing much. Did you know that that was going to be the role before you got there? Did you know it would be so varied? Not really. Like I had some idea of what they did, but I, I didn't specifically know what they'd need me for and then definitely as it sort of grew it was definitely that all-rounder just jump in any spot even down to the fact of um you know sometimes i'd have buses come in for breakfast and i'd cook 200 bacon and eggs for, <laughs> for um you know a big bus load of um internationals or something like that having previously worked on another cattle station where your role was you know pretty much in on the cattle side of things i'm just wondering you know it's one thing to I find even with people that do work on a cattle station that's, say, got no tourism or anything else, it can be common, I suppose. And I've even had this experience that you get there and you want to be out mustering, you know, at the very least fencing, you know, so mustering <laughs> yard work, you mean, if you're desperate fencing. But, you know, when you get given those jobs around the house, like, oh, today you'll just be moving sprinklers or you'll be painting this fence or you'll be, you know, doing this or that. And you're just kind of like, oh, I didn't come here to do that. I came here to work with cows. And then you just said that you were cleaning toilets. But then <laughs> on top of that, you're a young fella as well. Like, so not to play into gender roles or anything, but it's just, it just, yeah. And then you're cooking and doing all sorts of other things. So did you, how did you take that? Yeah, I, look, honestly, of course, you wanted to be out there flying around the bush, chasing animals and things like that. That's what I was passionate about at that point in my life and um, and that sort of thing. And I do probably remember I probably may have arced up about it once or twice, being like, oh, I've got all this stuff to do. Let me do that. I don't want to clean toilets today. <laughs> but it might have just been an excuse. But the big thing that I noticed was um, in his self, he would get in there and do those jobs and that was a big learning curve for me and um, just be like, why is he doing it? Like he owns this place. Uh, And I I thought, well, i got to do everything he does because he pays me. (laughs) And that sort of, I don't know, he was a good, he he led well like that. So, you know. So that was a a big influence in like accepting different roles. Definitely. Because he could have easily just taught. Any job he didn't feel like doing, he could have just palmed it off and said, you guys do it. Um, so, yeah, no, it definitely, uh, you know, I, I think that helped. I find that interesting that that's, that's something that's uh, influenced, I suppose, like your work ethic in that sense because, you know, and I say in this day and age, but 
even even throughout COVID when we've had such a shortage of backpackers in this country, uh, I suppose I hear this more coming from older or elder Australians that, you know, young people don't want to work anymore <laughs> and do this. And, you know, we can't find people to, to pick fruit these days or to do, you know, any sort of thing because, you know, they're too good for it. So I just found that I just I was wondering how you didn't fall into that trap of being like, I, I know how to break in horses and ride motorbikes and I could go get a job on any other station and do all that stuff. But you stayed there, even though you got to do the fun stuff, but doing literally the shit jobs as well. Uh, <laughs> right. when you could go back to a place like Arga, Daga, Da, I don't, or Ar- we'll just call it Arga or anywhere else. And, you know, still have to do some shit jobs, but not so far removed from cattle work. Yeah. I don't know. I just really. It's a beautiful place. It's a very beautiful part of Australia and it was stunning. And I don't know, it, it, it was good being able to – I do and like sort of communicating with people and stuff like that. So you're always talking to different people and, and that sort of thing and that was a fun sort of part of the job. But then you could also, if you didn't want to talk to people, completely remove yourself from that yeah. as well. So it gave you the option, which, you know, station life can sometimes take away the option a little bit. Um, you know, communication's getting a lot better on them. but when you know, in like 2006 or something it would have been like, you know, wasn't that good then, you know, internet and phones and things like that weren't sort of doing what they can do now. So um, you were very isolated. So, yeah, I think I did did like that side of it. And, yeah, we got mixed into, you know, holiday TV things and, and things like that. You know, you get thrown on getaway or, or something like that. And that was really fun. Like, you know, me to get on there and fang around on a motorbike <laughs> while you're getting filmed, it's like felt like a celebrity. So. Yeah. Definitely grew a connection to the the family that owned the place and, yeah, just wanted to sort of stay. How did you go on the social side of things? Did you have more people your age? I imagine, well, obviously tourism was a big part of your interaction with other human beings. There were probably older people coming through on, like, yeah, all yeah. those tours. Yeah, you got, like, well, there's, like, the backpacker tours and all that oh, sort of okay, thing as yeah, well. True, so, yep. like, um that there's a lot of young people coming through, but a lot of the staff were backpackers. So there was like a team that worked in the in the reception and in the kitchen and that sort of thing. And so they were all like young backpackers and the people that worked in the yards and stuff like that were all backpackers too. So and they were all like, you know, eighteen to um twenty three. So, you know, we had pretty fun time together, you know. Yeah, I can imagine. But of course, you never had any real fun until your future wife walked <laughs> walked through the gate, drove through the front gates, right? Yeah, pretty well. Yeah. So I um I also understand that while you first met your future wife Hannah again, episode thirty seven, um, <laughs> gotta plug that one, guys. It's one of our most popular episodes. But while you met her, uh, she came through as a tourist. But then, um, obviously, the draw was so strong that in her job in the months following that, she um, took a job. Like leading backpacker tours, <laughs> she's just dry reaching in the corner. Uh, you Look, know, Central took- Australia has that attractment. Yeah, that something strong pulls you in there. Like I, I still miss it now. Like it's yeah. a, it's a real special place to me, Central Australia. And I think you know, once you spend a bit of time and get that sort of red sand. In the blood, it's hard to get out. So they, and I think we can say that about a lot of places, but I yeah. certainly, as somebody who's about to move back to Alice Springs, I can really agree that Central Australia, it's a little secret hidden gem. No yeah. one really talks about it, but, um, 
yeah, it's pretty special. But yeah, I just love that Hannah, you know, was so keen to be around you that she wanted to find a job where she could come and <laughs> yeah, bring you Yeah, I definitely think that's why she did it. Yeah, um. exactly. Not for, the, not, not for the money or anything. <laughs> no, because, um, yeah, she was leaving. She was like going overseas or something. I'm like, yeah, right. Um, it was nice to meet you. Um, Next minute, she rolls back then, in on yeah, a bus with a busload like, of tourists, like, hey, honey. <laughs> it was almost how it happened. Well, I mean, I don't know. Did Hannah talk about that last time? But pretty well. Um, I don't know. But you, she did just tell us. No, but I mean, <laughs> there we go. She, I mean, how it like had our first date or anything like that. Yeah, that you drove 500 kilometers yeah. to, yeah, which is, again, probably why I'm so savage on like any dates I go on now and I'm like (laughs) what's that one person one person recently like wanted me to drive like 150 k's to meet them and I was like fuck off (laughs) ever drove 500 k's to meet Hannah like at least meet me halfway (laughs) seems reasonable actually I did drive 100 k's yeah anyway (laughs) anyway but I but I had that in mind as I was driving to this date I was like this isn't how it's supposed to work I've got a 100k drive you've got a 20k drive we should have just met somewhere halfway in the middle of the road like Hannah just demanded it (laughs) she's like I'm free tomorrow and I was like oh if that's the only option I'm gonna get so (laughs) and ladies and gentlemen though this is the like for anybody listening who's single this is the standard that you set like do not (laughs) To accept anything oh. less because it does exist. It does exist. Um, or maybe it's so elusive that it doesn't actually exist and that's why we're all single because you guys are like unicorns. But anyway, I'm not going to hold that against you. Um, how long – I know you you had a, a few little um, jaunts away from Kings Creek over the years, but between going coming and going, um, how much time do you think you spent there all up? I think it was somewhere like – Near seven years in the end or something like that. That's um, a long time yeah, to be yeah. associated with one place. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was. And like, yeah, I mean, the owner ended up like a second dad, like Lynn was like a second mum sort of thing. Like it was just a complete second family, like the way I looked at it. So, um, yeah, so it was definitely an experience um, that I'll never forget and they're people that I'll, you know, always sort of cherish. Now, aside from the tourism side of things and the the cattle work, you mentioned earlier there were a lot of other feral animals on the property, particularly horses and camels. And uh, if anybody wants to do a stalk of Evan on social media, his Instagram is Evan Casey Stockmanship. So you obviously got to spend a fair bit of time doing work with camels and horses. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. So obviously, horses were definitely my passion. We used to sell a lot of camels and that sort of thing, but at that point through the station, it was mainly for, like, just um, meat. Uh, so I really still fell in love with Brumbies and working with Brumbies and that sort of thing. I, you know, grew, grew up and been around horses and that sort of thing, but it was all domesticated horses and training domesticated horses quite different to the first interactions you have with a wild horse, which is almost never seen a person, and I sort of just really fell in love with that and sort of – just jumped in head first and just tried to figure out ways to work with them, you know, watched every sort of video, read every book I could read about training and then actually putting it into sort of practical process. And, yeah, it was quite a good experience. And with the horses, I ended up getting mixed up with um, Australian Brumby Research Unit, quite an amazing guy um, named Professor Chris Pollitt. And uh, the guy that was doing his PhD then was Brian Hampson and they were doing a study on laminitis and, yeah, I just sort of jumped in the mix and 
like anything I can do, <laughs> I'll help out. And I learned so much from those guys and just gave me a really good excuse uh, to be working with horses all the time and catching wild horses and sort of trying to quiet them down as quick as possible. And uh, then we even started doing tours for a while where we were literally, we would invite people out. And they, they had to be you know, experienced riders and, and that sort of thing, but we'd go catch wild horses on the first day you arrived. We'd spend a week training them and then we'd spend a week riding them through the desert. So we'd just ride them through the desert into random water holes and, and stuff like that. And it was a pretty special experience for Anyone who ever got to come on trips like that, it wasn't hundreds, but we definitely took a fair few people out. I can imagine there's going to be a lot of listeners wondering if that still exists today. <laughs> I think they still do a bit of a Brumby week there, but obviously after COVID and um, the place changing hands, I, I'm not 100% sure um, what they do these days, but um, I do know they were operating through Globetrotter for, for a while there. Tell me about your first experience with a Brumby my first experience, gosh, I can't. I don't know if I can really recollect the first experience. So one really memorable sort of thing was, and this is probably why Hannah says I used to be a bit cocky, was I had this really old stallion. You know, I can only estimate he would have been, you know, over ten years of age or, or something like that. And you know, at that point, everyone was like, "Oh, you can't train that." You know, they they they're too wild. And I was like, "That's the one I I want to train." <laughs> So I grabbed this older stallion and he ended up being one of the most beautiful horses I've ever worked with, you know. Like uh, he used to – I didn't have him in a paddock or a yard or anything. He just lived out the front of the house on the station and he used to wander through all the campground area and kids would run up and hug him on the legs and, and it was just this full, you know, entire stallion <laughs> just running around and happy as anything and never – like, you know, he could have ran off into the desert. It wasn't fenced that area or anything like that and he never went anywhere and – that was a pretty special sort of experience. I don't to this day now believe that I can train every horse. <laughs> but definitely after that point, I was like, yeah, I'm awesome at this. Um, <laughs> so I had a few realizations with some tougher horses after that. And, you know, <laughs> it's definitely not, you know, every single one is, is so different. And it was, yeah, I, I still find domesticated horses are harder to work with, you know, growing up around people and, not reacting the same way like native like you know so that natural behavior you get from a wild horse is very easy to read and um there's a lot of information a lot of way more intelligent people than me have sort of studied them and worked with them and can literally give you a handbook of what's going on and it's just about slowing down and and sort of feeling what's happening what else can you teach us about brumbies i imagine most of us listening have never had the opportunity to work with them i've seen them from a distance and you know that's about as far as i've been able to get before they turn and bolt off in the other direction yeah so the work we were doing was to do with laminitis so like hoof work uh, and understanding um you know trying to figure out ways to you know fix domesticated horses or does it even i think the main phd they were doing was to do with do wild horses get Laminitis. And uh, what is laminitis for anyone that's not horsey? Uh, simplest way is like uh, pretty much sort of like tendons hold a, a bone inside the hoof and they can become weak and break. Uh, and it's caused by lots of different things. It can be caused by diet, stress, uh, lots of different sort of things can cause it. And literally the bone can then put pressure on the sole of the foot, on the sole of the hoof, and then um, obviously make them feel very uncomfortable and it's very hard to fix after it, after it happens. So um, they were just trying to figure out, do, does it happen to wild horses or only domesticated horses? And that was what the study was about. 
we did a lot of work with that. Obviously, wild horses do get laminitis. That was the, the main outcome. But the main thing we learned was their, their hoofs themselves were so much thicker. You know, um, I think it was like 10 to 15 mil on average on sole and hoof wall. So it was a very strong hoof. The hoof grew very quickly. And in that area, it is really desert. So there's not much water around and there's not much feed. So we had some uh, horses that had collars on and were obviously traveling um, to survive. And we found that a lot of them were only drinking every three to five days and were covering distances of up to 150 kilometers. So they were really tough. And the horses in that area were all uh, remnants of, of horses from uh, like breeding grounds during the war. So they're all old, old sort of war horse or, you know, whalers. I think some people refer them as to, but that, you know, there's quite a different array of types of horses that were, that were out there. But yeah, they definitely learned to adapt to Australia very well. How does one go about catching a wild horse in this environment? As again, I'm, I'm assuming there's not much infrastructure, but even then, if, even if you did have some, how do you get a wild horse into it um, <laughs> for this study to be able to put those collars on them and have a closer look? So we were doing a, a few different things. Obviously, we were mustering horses in general anyway. So we were, you know, some of the areas we were removing horses from because there was a lot. Um, so we were mustering them uh, and selling them. So we would get horses from that in, in that way. And then we're also um, tranquilizing horses. So we'd sneak in really quietly and um, tranquilize a horse and put a collar on or something like that for tracking and, and that sort of thing. So we just put them to sleep and put a collar on, then wake them back up and walk away. So when you were mustering horses, so this was a, a already ongoing activity, not necessarily uh, happening just because of the laminitis study. Yeah. How do you muster, you know, what are you out there on horses yourselves or on motorbikes? How many people? Is it the same as mustering cattle? Yeah, so... You know, obviously these animals are never being handled. So most of the work we were doing was in like crown land areas and stuff like that, subleases and that sort of thing. So there was no facilities or anything. So we'd take everything out. We'd take a, have to grade the road there, you know, take all portable yards, set up portable yards, really long wings. So off the front of the yard, we'd have like Hessian wings set up. You know, sometimes they could be 800 meters long sort of thing. Horses were hard work because once they started moving, they almost didn't stop, you know, for 15 to 30 kilometers, they could just move. As you can imagine, like I said, they were traveling so far just to, to live. They were fit as anything and tough as anything. So all the work we were doing then was pretty much on motorbikes, but helicopters did that job. Like it was. Oh, okay. So these helicopters yeah, as well. Yeah. Yeah. Helico- helicopters did that job. Like it was so hard once they started moving to try and bend them and everything like that. We moved them, you know, you work very wide. As you can imagine, when you think about, you know, like flight zones, you know, you think about that. So you, you know, you were working a lot wider. You know, you might be 800 meters away and you can bend an animal from that distance because they're flight zones. Like they're seeing you there and they're, they're reacting to you from that distance. So obviously, as it gets closer, you can sort of, um, tighten that up a bit. But yeah, sometimes we might just use helicopters. You know, we just have two helicopters that sort of do the job. Yeah. You sort of had to make sure. I really learned a lot about putting a yard in the right spot. So, you know, we'd use natural landscape and, and pick where the animals would want to run naturally and then literally put a gate right in the middle of a, a big pad um, hidden around the corner of a ridge or, or something like that. So literally the animals could not see the yard until they were in it. Um, and, yeah, that taught me a lot about feral horses, taught me a lot, and then it made it so much easier to deal with cattle 
after that <laughs> because it's just not the same reaction or not the same endurance or speed or yeah. Are horses quite you like you said they're obviously quite athletic and fit and and tough um, because you know they're surviving out in the wild. When it comes to handling them in these situations, were they quite uh, tough or were they more? I'm trying to think of the word, not precious. Um, but like, was it easy, you know, to cook a horse or to, to go too hard? And, you know, um, I know sometimes working with wild cattle, if you don't hand, handle it right, they can just like lay down and decide to die <laughs> or not get up, you know, or not, yeah, you know, even stress. if you have managed to get them on the truck, I've seen them, you know, stay on that truck overnight. We left the gate open, uh, and came back the next day and it was still in the truck, but dead. Like they just, it's like a decision, like honest, like, I'm going to die, and then they just do it. Um, horses, what is it like with horses, them? Look, they are tough. Um, they're tough on each other. Um, oh, yes, savage. Uh, so, like most unhandled animals, they are. You have to really take your time moving them around the yard. They don't look for the gate. They don't look for the hole to move through. Um, so you sort of have to just really make sure you got that pressure and release just working very. Very exactly. Um, you know, if they're going the right way, give them their space and let them have a look. And that's something they're just very reactive. And of course, the main thing with most wild animals is they want to look at you. They haven't learned how to move off of pressure. So they, they want to look at you because you're scary and you're a danger and they don't want to turn around and put their back to you. They want to see where you are at the whole time. So it's, you know, you need to just do a little bit of handling, moving them back and forth yards and things like that. But yeah, loading, um, any animal that hasn't been sort of grown up being handled, uh, it can be extremely difficult. Were there only like certain times of year that you could do this? Were there times of the year where it would be too hot and they, you know, couldn't handle the conditions? Again, like with cattle, you know, people try not to do any handling over the summer, particularly if they've got uh, calves because it's just it's easy to perish them more. It's it's really hard on them. Is it hard on horses in the same way? Yeah, yeah, it's it's exactly the same. So it has to be done in the right season and obviously um, going into some of those remote areas we were working and the roads not being very well established and stuff like that. Weather was a big thing that come into account. Rain would completely get you stuck there. So, um, yeah, it had to be sort of very specific times of the year and obviously you didn't want lots of sort of surface water laying around after rains and stuff like because the animals would be spread right out so we'd normally wait till you know that later part of the season when most of the sort of water holes from from summer storms and things had dried dried up and um you know they were sort of more congregating in one area which made it a lot lot cheaper to do the job because it's not a it's not a high value <laughs> sort of job catching horses and camels it was it was marginal work but um you know, it was still a way to make money and um, in seasons where that were hard. Uh, I know uh, Kings Creek itself, like, you know, camels and that really got them through in, in hard seasons because they had something to sell. Um, well, I think you're saying it's marginal work kind of shows even more the, like, you know, that's makes it so much more important with how you do the job because, you know, you can't afford to lose 10% or two percent or whatever of you know you can't afford to be having things with broken well not that you would not that people honestly would want that anyway but if it is so marginal like every little bit counts every kilo that stays on the animal every you know think that will affect its chances of not just surviving but thriving um with this laminitis study so you said it was looking into something that so laminitis affects their hooves I'm guessing to, and you said they had a, a thicker sole than domesticated horses. I'm guessing that to find that out, 
that you had to like cut open a hoof. Like these were, yeah, yeah. these were like kind of like off like horsey cadavers. Yeah. Yeah. So they obviously did it with domesticated horses and with wild horses um, to find out, yeah, what, what was going on and what the differences were and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Which they found out a lot. It was quite interesting. Yeah. <laughs> no, I thought I should just bring that up. Um, I find it's easier ne- not to leave anything to chance or assumption um, because when people think Brumbies, obviously there's it's quite contentious when it comes to Brumby culling and all that kind of stuff. Um, but your, uh, especially as this was somebody's PhD, having been involved in a number of uh, pr- research projects involving animals through government and uh, university institutions, there's so many like animal ethics. There's so many. Um, you know, steps in place and everything. And so I just wouldn't want anybody to think that, you know, the re, like that everything was obviously signed off, accounted for, and that it was that the uh, euthanizing of these horses for this study was anything like what people may see. Obviously, there's been some pretty uh, average uh, examples of that happening around the place, but just thought it's better to not leave anything to anyone's imagination <laughs> and just clarify that this is. Yeah, a lot of the horses that we were catching. Um, if they were like when I say they're going for meats, funnily enough, a lot of them are actually going for human consumption, like going into in European sh- countries. Oh, and stuff I was like, like, yeah. like <laughs> not so much in Australia, I but feel uh, like but yeah, so that was, um, yeah, I, sorry, that wasn't appropriate, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was definitely, um, the easiest way to go about it is they were literally getting, um, going down and getting oh, used. So they then- got them. The horsey cadavers came from the meatworks. Yes, because we didn't need – we only needed the hooves or, or that sort of thing. Yeah. So, it worked out easy. Uh, I'm imagining that perhaps once you've yarded them and you've caught them, maybe <laughs> you just shot them in the yard or something. So, again, a lot easier when you're in close contact to be able to euthanize them than, you know, trying to do it out of a chopper or something. Although, in saying that, there are some incredibly talented people who are very good at what they do and do it very humanely. But, okay, that makes more sense. You're yeah. getting your horsey cadavers from an abattoir. That makes – Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that's probably why they jumped in because we were already, you know, like some of these areas. Yes. I know one specifically had something like 20,000-plus wild horses on it at yeah. one stage. There was yeah. a lot of horses. And there. I know it too, it's not very often that you can get a research study approved where the animals are being killed purely for the focus of research. Like um, even when I did a study last the last couple of years where I had to collect blood samples from cattle, we weren't allowed to do it if the cattle were being mustered just so we could collect the samples, they had to be being mustered for the sake of, like, for being yeah, general yeah. mustering. And then if they were already in the eyes, then we were allowed to go. Like, there's so many stop gaps in place to make sure that everything is, you know, as least, um, yeah, tickety-boo, basically, yeah, is the gist 100%. of that. Um, tell me about camels then. Um, are they hard to muster? Do you, can you muster, you know, camels are known for living in the desert and not needing water or, you know, whatever, not drinking very often. Can you muster them in the heat of December or do you also need to kind of keep that for the cooler months? Look, you probably, you probably can muster them whenever, just be depending how far you're moving them. They're obviously not as affected by heat um, as uh, cattle and horse, but obviously because they haven't been handled. We're talking about catching wild camels, not sort of breeding them on farm. Uh, you know, it can still be stressful for them. So you still want to pick the best, best time of year to do it. Um, and that marginal sense as well, trying to get the best bang for your buck. And, um, yeah, we would typically actually go find where the camels were, um, because they were literally just roaming through areas of that. Cause, um, 
that area there, I think we're the most, yeah, we were definitely one of the most Western um, pastoral leases in that area. So there was nothing to the West of us. So camels could just come in right from, from Western Australia and in those deserts. And um, yeah, we would literally take a yard to the camels and then save on helicopter time by having the yard a lot closer <laughs> and then truck them. Um, or sometimes, you know, uh, we, we would just set up yards and, and move the camels because they could just get into a bit of a trot and, and, and move along, you know, 30 kilometers quite comfortably. And, um, yeah, quite surprising, amazing animal. I have a lot of respect for camels. They're just built for the desert. It's a pretty impressive animal. You've done a lot of work with camels with your fiance. For a moment there, I forgot Hannah's name. <laughs> For a moment there, I forgot your fiance's name. Uh, Hannah, Hannah Purse, soon to be Hannah Casey, but not on her Instagram because there's too many Hannah Caseys on Instagram. We discovered last night. <laughs> <laughs> now she's dying in the corner. Um, including, uh, so you guys have done camel treks. You've travelled to the Middle East. You've done a lot of consulting with camel dairies. How do you get into this area and not just? You know, obviously, it's one thing to, I suppose, to be out catching wild animals, but you guys were consulting. Like, you've been recognized as having a, a, a wealth um, of experience in this, I suppose, industry. Yeah. I don't, I think a lot of it, a lot of it come from, and, it, and it's pretty much all the animals that I work with, whatever species, I like to push outside the box a little bit. And there's a lot of things that, you know, you get told when you're, you're learning, like, oh, you can't do this with them or you, Oh, they don't do this or don't try and do that with this age one or, or whatnot. And I would always just be like, why? <laughs> and that's probably what, what led us in that direction was pushing that boundary and testing those things. So literally someone say, Oh, you can't train a camel at this age. It's really difficult. So we'd go get one at that age and train it and be like, no, that's all right. And then we just started to try and be like, well, what actually is the truth or what works? And, and it was the same with, with horses or. You know, the way we handle cattle, you know, I definitely remember people, oh, you can't do that with pastoral cattle and coming from, you know, domesticated sort of cows on a, on a little farm. You got a couple hundred cows or something, they're quiet as anything, go yell and they run in. And, you know, I wanted pastoral cattle to look like that. <laughs> I wanted them to behave like that. Save us a lot of money if you just yell out and they all just run to the yard. So it's definitely, yeah, just, just trying to push those boundaries and try new techniques and new things all the time. And that's probably what led us in that direction was just, continually trying new things and trying out new things and some of them didn't work um but it was just allowing yourself to fail and then try again so just yeah i think that's probably the easiest way to answer it so copying a loss isn't you know isn't a well i mean for anyone i suppose it's somewhat of a major thing but it doesn't seem like that holds you back like you just said doesn't mean it doesn't hurt (laughs) especially if you put time and, and money and and that sort of thing and everyone's standing around looking at you doing it. Um, we're good at that. So, you know, um, especially if someone said, don't do it like that, that doesn't work. And you'd be like, no, I'm going to try it. Um, anyway, and that was, but that I definitely learned a lot from that. And that's definitely what, in, especially around camels, that's what landed somewhere. Like, you know, people were training camels a certain way. Obviously, I was more used to training horses. And that was through that, you know, sort of, Pat Pirelli, Monty Roberts, you know, like the, the big names, you know, that natural horsemanship, whispering to horses sort of thing. And I was like, why aren't we camel whispering? Like, why do we got to put ropes on them and halters on them? And, you know, why can't we just 
put them in a round yard and settle them down and get them used to having that interaction that way. So we spent, like when I say we, I'm talking about my fiance Hannah and me just went and bought a bunch of wild camels and this is when we were going into um, doing some consulting with um, camel milk. Uh, and we were like, all right, we'll get a bunch of wild camels and train them four different ways and see which ones work best and right down to, you know, no ropes at all to, you know, right up to training them all to lead, tie and everything like that. So, yeah, and we went through that process and then found out, yeah, we can train these guys without having to put a rope on them, without having to, you know, sort of interact that way. We can, we have to milk them. We don't need to ride them. So we just need to get them desensitized enough to, you know, get them used to having machine milk them. So, um, we focused on that rather than focusing on teaching them to tie up. I think that's a really nice segue into what I'd like to ask you about next. And that's the research project that you're currently involved in. So while you, you're, you know, initially came to, let's say the outback, I always feel so cheesy when I call it <laughs> that, like so, so cliche, uh, you know, to be on cattle stations, the, the work you've done with wild horses and camels has, been a huge part of your time out in the outback um, and and really uh, taken you on so many adventures and and um, developed your experience and knowledge uh, in that in, in that area but you're currently back sort of on the um, cow side of things you've kind of come not yeah. I wouldn't say full circle because I feel like there will it's not like this isn't the end like I do <laughs> I can very much see you and Hannah being back or you know I guess you do have a few camels here, though, on the cattle station yeah. that you know that you still work with. Um, but you're managing a cattle station now, as you said at the beginning of this episode, in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. And you know, now I think it seems we can see the logic of how you approach things, and you like to do things outside the box um, and do something different. So tell us about the project you're currently doing. How you you know, well, where the idea came from, whether it was you or someone else and, and how you're approaching it yeah. and, and the purpose of it, I guess. Why? Yes. Yeah, so we're working on virtual fencing. Um, it's definitely been something that's been around for quite a while, but the technology, you know, initially was terrible. So, um, uh, you know, investment into agriculture is not a big thing. So it's been slow to get to where we're at now. The guy that runs uh, sort of, Rio Tinto Pastoral Sim, he was really interested in virtual fencing and that was sort of one of the large reasons that we decided to come back to the Pilbara was to do with that interest and wanting to go down the road of doing some research and development with it. So, yeah, we sort of come back over here to, to get that started and it took us a little bit. Same thing again, getting approvals and working with unis and stuff like that to get it all happening uh, takes a little bit. So what is virtual fencing? So the style that we're using at the moment is a, a Cow wears a collar. That collar communicates with a tower, which then can obviously send it to a computer. And with that collar, we can draw a fence pretty much anywhere and uh, it has an audio stimulus. So it has like an audio warning. It beeps. Uh, and then if they continue to walk through that audio warning, it's an electric stimulus, like an electric fence. So, but it's just not, it's invisible. So we have to train them to use it. We train them in like, behind a permanent fence. So we put them behind a permanent fence and literally turn that permanent fence into a virtual fence. So we train them that that virtual, that physical fence is a virtual fence and then we eventually remove the physical fence or take them somewhere else. And 
Is there something that exists like this for dogs? I feel like. Yeah, there, there is for sure. It's just not probably as clever. It's just a very basic version. But, yes, they do have them for dogs. Sometimes it's like a – I think it actually is a physical cord that can be buried or uh, laid on the ground or there's like a – yeah, like a censored type version yeah. for GPS. So if you um, – so if the dog or the cow goes – is starting to get towards this invisible fence – uh, they get a warning beep, and then if they get closer, it's a like a pulse, like a electric pulse. Yeah. That you know, obviously not again any research project and anything to be available commercially has to go through rigorous animal welfare um, uh, testing and meet standards. So it's not like we're like you know shocking them. It's not. Yeah, yeah, that's literally part of what we're doing at the moment is finding that out. That yeah. You know, and um, so we do a test with animals with the collars on. Animals with no collars, and we, that's where we started. So, and then we do like a fecal cortisol testing. So we te- we can test their stress levels, and in the first test that we did, they were identical. They didn't change. So the animals that were wearing the collars and the animals that didn't have any collars, they were exactly identical coming out of the paddock. So, so we showed it, no change. So even though this technology is somewhat available, even though it's in various stages of development, depending on you know the manufacturer or yeah. software company. Um, Rather than just p- buying into it and just implementing it, you guys are actually doing a study uh, with the University of Western Australia to to really just do some, I guess, some extra study to really. Yeah, correct. Well, it's not actually. Um, so this is part of changing legislation in Western Australia. Oh, okay. Tell me about that. Well, it's so it's legal in I think New South Wales and Victoria at the moment. I think it actually just has become. Uh, legalized now in Western Australia, but there's still some work to be done around the legislation with mm-hmm. it. And like any new technology, that's what we're getting involved with is trying to actually get it across the line. Um, so everyone can use it. And, um, obviously from my perspective is like, does it work? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the fun part of being involved in sort of the research is like, I want to know that it works. I don't want the cows to be stressed because then they're not going to be producing their best. So you've explained the, the how, the how of this virtual fence and the collar and the tower and computer works. Yeah. In the, and, you know, and so you've also said that you guys are doing the study to really like just really put it through its paces and really, um, make, you know, rigorous testing to show the impacts on animal welfare and production. Yeah. Um, but let's go back to the why. Why would you want to use a virtual fence when you've got plenty of barbed wire and steel posts around, or if you're really lucky and you're on like a farm down south, you've got pretty like wooden posts and pickets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess um, there's there's a lot of different reasons. Obviously, fencing costs a lot to maintain fences. Putting in new fences is, is quite a large cost. So that's that infrastructure cost and constant maintenance is a large part of it. Um, and then the other side of it is is paddock use and, and um, pasture management. So that's probably where where my interest more lies, and you know a lot of people are going into that cell grazing style where they're creating lots of small paddocks, lots of water points, and a lot of infrastructure. But the outlay is is huge. You, you've got to spend a lot of money to get it set up that way, so that you're you know grazing um, smaller areas for short periods with high stock densities um, and moving really often. So. I guess it's trying to do that without having to put in all of that infrastructure. You're not spending millions and millions of dollars to get to that point um, and then having to catch up and pay that off eventually. Um, so it's just a 
cheaper way to get to that point. And um, obviously, you know, where I'm based in the Pilbara here, it's um, it's fairly marginal country, you know. Uh, so for me, it's more about just like um, being able to manage the paddocks really well. So, you know, after rain, maybe I can move cattle out of a certain area, let that area get reestablished and um, let the, you know, sort of germination sort of happen there and get roots established and that sort of thing rather than the cattle always want to get that fresh green bit of pick and you know uh just just give the the pasture a break uh and and rest it without actually having to go in there and move the animals so you're not having to you know destock or move out you can increase your stocking densities and just move your cows around like really frequently but without having to be really labor intensive or infrastructure intensive so um I guess in a perfect world, it's yeah, just being able to almost like sell graze or strip graze without having to build anything or really change anything. So rather than having the cattle spread out, which is which has been the traditional model since, well, since um, people stopped using shepherds. Yeah, yeah, like set set stocking. Yeah, it's really normal. So up here, you you can drive for kilometers and kilometers and barely see any cows, and and when you do, I mean, you may see a a a mob of them around a water point, but if you're say flying over, they're generally very spread out, very sparsely populated across the landscape. So rather than do that, the idea is to is to replicate what is. becoming a more and more common practice on much smaller properties yeah, or farms. Yeah. Um, so to run your cattle as, as bigger groups in, but be able to move them around without having to build all fences to, to. Yeah, exactly. We, we need so, to do a whole episode on Alan <laughs> Savory and herd impact and yeah. surely there's a Johan five minute. Zietzman and there's, there's a lot of guys that are Gabe yeah. Brown. Um, Heaps. <laughs> yeah, poor um, what's his name just gets like all the. He's the <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's the one everyone knows his yeah, name. Yeah, he did the Alan Savory and, and like it, the, look, amazing. He's still yeah, Sorry. still amazing. But I'm like, we do need to start getting some of these other names out there. Give everyone, give everyone a turn. Yeah. Um, what? Where where are you at with the project now? So, what we've sort of found out so far is pretty much the collars work 100. percent The collars themselves. Uh, we still need work and we're on our third model next year. Oh, so wow. So we're changing over. So I haven't actually seen it yet. They're coming out faster than iPhones. I'm, I'm excited to see the new one. Uh, the ones we have now, they're still, you know, they're, they are reasonably easy, but they're a little bit fiddly to put on and take a bit of time. Do they have, are they like, oh, I don't know what you use when you like, um, put up, like when you put your backpack on sometimes and you've got that strap that goes to your chest, you know, that little like, I don't know what you call that kind of, yeah, it's a, it's a catch thing where like the things go in and then it like. Yeah, so that's snap. how it finishes off, but you have like to like a dog collar. Yeah, yeah, but you obviously have to like adjust. They adjust separately, so they sit on the animal a certain way, so that. Um. So you have to like they are can be a little bit fiddly, um, to do. I think to do a uh, hundred animals, it took me about five hours. Wow! So like too long. Yeah. <laughs> what? But then once they're on, is, have you found that the the retention rate is good, or are the cattle pretty good at kind of rubbing them off or no, no, losing them? not really having them come off. The one issue we are having is um like they invert, so they twist. Yeah. So then the electric pulse touches nothing. <laughs> yeah. um, the cow's like sweet. <laughs> so, but the funny thing we've found with that. So even though we're having the twisting, it's definitely something that needs to be fixed and that's what they're hoping with this next model that that won't be an issue anymore. We've found that doing the training 
and then taking them out and putting it into practice, we're still having like almost 100% of the animals still stay within that virtual fence, even though we're having collar issues. So that herd mentality is quite strong. And that's sort of, you know, the question that comes up often is like, do we have to put them on all of them? You know, could we just put it on, on, you know, can we try and pick out the matriarchal type cows and, and would that be enough to hold them in? And, you know, I'm not a hundred percent sure on that, but it is interesting to, to watch them react and see when, you know, uh, and it could just be the training. If the training's done right, they hear the audio stimulus. They're like, I don't want to go any further. Um, so it could be, you know, it's a bit of, a bit of both. Um, for sure. That's um that's a really interesting concept, the idea of, you know, maybe not all of them need to wear a collar. Maybe it's a it's almost like you watch a TV show. Oh, I'm trying to think of like an example in a movie or a TV show where yeah, there's a bunch of prisoners and somebody has the chance to escape, but then they're like, oh, no, nah, no, nah, I'll just stay with the Like it's safer. <laughs> like, you know, um, maybe that's in like The Handmaid's Tale or something so like that. But cows and cows. Yeah, escape. So, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> no, I know uh, what you mean. But, it's, uh, um, it's definitely, but you know, they'll be walking towards a virtual fence and I've seen it now and you'll hear it beep and they'll all stop and the one, only one will get the beep and it's not very loud. Yeah. Um, some may hear it close by, but that one will just turn around and then all the others will just turn around and go back the other way. And, um, we've definitely found within 48 hours, they're very, they, they, they know how it works within that time frame. And then under 30 days, we've had them almost not touching the fence. I wonder if there would be that one rebellious cow in every mob though. Like when you take yeah, kids yeah. to, <laughs> on a field trip somewhere and they're all two by two holding hands, you know, staying with the pack and there's just one kid that just makes a run for it and is like, oh, something shiny. Like, <laughs> I've definitely had like horses that will just walk up and touch electric fences all the time. Like, no, nah, it's still on. No, nah, it's <laughs> yeah. still on. Uh, what about today? What about today? <laughs> um, and then as soon as it's not, they'll walk through it. And it's That's definitely- like the dinosaurs from Jurassic Park. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't they figure that out when the fences went on? Exactly. T-Rex oh my God. or something. <laughs> um, no, it's definitely something that's come up and, and we've sort of, I've got this, there's got to be a 1%, you know, um, but we haven't specifically seen that yet. But, you know, we're obviously putting them on our cows that we want to keep. So, you know, they should be pretty well behaved cows and that sort of thing. So I, I'm, we're not specifically, specifically seeing much of a sort of reaction or, Whatnot, but um, they do have safety things built in place for those calls, and that's why I say they're, they're a lot more sort of technologically advanced than the than the cat, than the dog ones, um, just because they can turn off, they can shut down. Um, if the animal actually moves through the fence, they shut down completely. So, and then if the animal then turns and comes back through it, there's no reaction from the collar until they come back in. So it, they're just yeah a little bit more clever and and yeah. they sort of figure because they can just run through if they want through to there's it, nothing like- to stop them um so how we maintain it is we won't put um like we'll put them at one water point and then turn the other water points off um so they have to come back so to you get- have like kind of backups it's not just yeah. like you'll have other things kind of working in to make them want to stay yeah where you want them to stay yeah but Incentives. Through, the, through the trials we actually haven't had it happen yeah <laughs> um because we were worried about it um for sure like these are not cattle that like you know doing they've done studies like this on small farms and put them on domesticated cattle and they work perfectly okay. and but putting them on pastoral cattle is a very Different kettle thing. of fish, yeah, hundred percent. Kettle of cows. <laughs> yeah, 
I've got two questions about this I want to ask before I let you go. One, do you put them on calves or wieners? And if so, how do you account for that as they grow and you don't want them to like, kind of like when you get a puppy and you've got to keep adjusting its collar. Obviously, it's a lot easier to catch a puppy in your living room (laughs) and adjust the collar when it starts choking itself than a cow. So, let's start with that one. Do you? Yeah, so at the moment, I think the collars can go down to fit on something around 250 kilos. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can't get much smaller. So they're not on calves um, or anything like that. So we are just working on the fact that the calves are going to stay with mum. But you, it's just about fitting them appropriately. So you just have to put them on and allow for um, whatever growth, growth they're going to have throughout that time. Obviously, I haven't really thought about it in a weaner process so much yet. Probably more with that type of grazing, I probably more think more for cows just because they have that ability to, to digest that rougher stuff where the wieners, um, especially where I am, you're probably more looking at letting them have that selective graze so they're um, putting their weight gains on quick and, and that sort of thing. But um, it's definitely something we'll be looking at um, probably within the next year or so. Okay. And my final question on the collar project is, so this is made to go, say, on a cow from – maybe 250 kilos till and stay on breeding cows, you know, whether you keep them until the ages of 10, 12, whatever. Um, so it needs to be very durable and in, well, anywhere in, in Australia, but particularly say in the pill where you've got incredible, like, you know, the sun, the wind, rain, um, all the elements. We know how incredibly difficult it is to try and keep pegs on the clothesline for like more than a month before they just absolutely turn to dust. How do you, so I'm like, if we can't figure out pegs for our clothesline, how do we figure out collars that are going to last like more than a month before disintegrating on the cow? I know. I guess we're building them for, um, you know, the guys that are making the ones we have now are literally building them for pastoralists. They're building them for farmers. If they don't work, um, you can imagine what, um, some pastures going to do with them. Yeah. <laughs> if it didn't last three months in the sun. Um, they probably want to be ready for it because it will be flying. Years, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know the actual lifespan of what, what their expectations of that are, but we're not actually purchasing the collars with our program. So you just lease um, oh. the collar. The battery really dependent on um, how much information you want from it. So up to two years yeah. um, with the battery, but that's just depending how much information you want coming back uh, and the information is just increasing all the time of what you want to get from it you know like to movement and everything it's getting pretty cool with what we could actually get out of those in the future but yeah obviously batteries are things that hold it back and um yeah so so really like i think most of the time you'd be putting it on for you know 12 months and then maybe putting a, a new one on um and there'd be like a rollover system with them um yeah, and I mean, I think the ones we're getting at the moment are costing us about $40 an animal or something like that, and that gives you access to the program and, and that sort of thing. But um, I'm definitely hoping it's going to come down, sort of. Yeah, I think we all hope everything comes down. <laughs> yeah, well, that, I, I literally had a conversation with the guys, and they're like, you know, we're building these for farmers, so um, it's got to be pretty cheap, otherwise they're not going to do it. And I was like, yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's, it's a marginal industry. There's not much room to move, so... Uh, although in saying that though, there would, I would like to see, obviously 
that's the first, it can be easy to get hung up and focused on that cost. But if you can demonstrate, you know, somebody would need to do, and not just a back of the envelope, but a proper economic study to work out the return on investment when you offset that against, sorry, offset that against the, uh, the cost of, uh, installing and maintaining um, and like repairing inf- the infrastructure offences, I'd be interested to see what that sweet spot is over 10, 20, whatever year period or over the life of the animal for what, you know, people may say, oh, $100 a collar, that's just too much. But if you were to work it out, I'm just picking that number out of the clouds, um, that that might be the, the sweet spot where it actually pays for itself versus the fencing you're not going to have to put in and stuff. So I'd be really interested for an, yeah. for an economist to do some work on that. Yeah, and I definitely think it your profit per acre would increase dramatically. And it's the same as like someone that is going to sell grazing, which is increasing their carrying capacity significantly. And that's sort of probably where they fall into that line as well. And um, obviously things like monitoring, if it's, you know, beeping quite often, you can have an alarm that tells you this animal hasn't moved for um, four or five hours and you're like, oh, that's a bit strange. And maybe you can go check it and you've got an exact GPS point where it is. Yeah. Um, And having that ability, I guess, um, you know, how many animals do you have to save, um, you know, if something's wrong right. or they're having calving problems or something like that? How many do you have to sort of help out and, and that sort of thing to, to pay it off? It's not actually yeah. <laughs> not actually that much, especially at the moment. It'll be very interesting. There's some great ag economists uh, in the Queensland Ag Department that have done some great work with all sorts of other projects. So looking at you guys, I think, um, <laughs> God, I can't remember the names right now. That's terrible. But anyway, um, before I get to my final question, I'm just, I feel like I should give you a chance. Um, we spoke, we said briefly that um, we said your, your boss, Sim Mathwin, um, did I just say his last name right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I should know. Yeah. God knows I've emailed him enough times. Um, but I was like, I don't think I've ever actually said that out loud. Uh, he, he, uh, he's obviously, um, kind of flagged this before you came along. Um, and you're doing this in partnership with UWA. So I just thought I'd give you a chance to, to make note of who is involved in the project. Um, so we're sharing the, you know. Yeah. So obviously, um, like most uh, research and development that goes into cattle, um, uh, like MLA have have interest, um, and obviously Beef Links over here in WA uh, uh, helping out, and then UWA, and then obviously Rio, uh, and it's hopefully just a little tiptoe step into where we really want to take uh, Rio Tinto in the pastoral world and research and development into you know how we can do sort of pastoral uh, farming better. So that's definitely Sims idea of where he wants to wants to take it and see what we can do for the pastoral industry and working with uwa they love pretty much anything we can offer so we are doing about four other projects at the moment as well so yeah we're hoping to take on a lot more and just just keep sort of stepping outside that box and seeing what we can do Brilliant. Some great partnerships forming there. And yeah, it's just early days. So yeah. looking forward to see what all you guys together pull off in the future. So now I don't know how, well, let's put you on the spot. How many, my second last question, how many episodes of this podcast have you listened to, Evan? Oh, a handful. Okay. <laughs> is that, that me? No, um, I'm not <laughs> a big podcast person. Oh, but, um, just saying before how good <laughs> podcasts are before yeah. we start recording. Okay, that's fine. I was just going to make sure because I didn't actually prepare you for the last question. But anybody that listens to this podcast, 
should know my final question. Do you know what my final question is going to be? No. I say it almost verbatim every episode. (laughs) Evan Casey, looking back on your story so far, what would you say is the biggest lesson that you've learned? I had a lot of people that I learned a lot from. I felt like a large part of that as I was um, learning was trying to read their mind. Uh, (laughs) So probably one of the big things I've learned is trying to communicate really clearly um, and communicating well and how important that is to everyone that surrounded you and um, especially your team that supports you because you can't do anything without them. So that's probably (laughs) a really important thing that I've learned because, you know, I've been in a lot of situations where I was like, I just don't even know what I'm supposed to be doing. (laughs) And you just give it a red hot go and then you realise, oh, all you need to do is talk about this more and and figure out and if everyone knows exactly what's happening, you can really do some pretty special things. So, yeah, I think that's probably something I've learnt that's really important in my life. 